Hello, and welcome to the second season of Genetically Speaking, the podcast for the American Society of Human Genetics, where we explore the human stories behind human genetics and genomics research. I'm your host, Chris Gunter. Today, we're looking forward to discussing a commentary published this year, 2021, in the journal Genetics and Medicine, entitled Long-Awaited Progress in Addressing Genetic Discrimination in the United States. So we have with us today the three authors, Anna Lewis and Robert Green, who were each based at a few institutions in Boston, and then Anya Prince, based in Iowa. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Great to be here. So can you give us some of the... Oh, sorry. Can you give us some of the background on the specific type of genetic discrimination you're addressing with this piece? Anya, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, so <clears throat> we should start with what's protected in the U.S. and what people are worried about. And so um, in the U.S., when we think about genetic discrimination, people are all, often really worried about how their employers or their insurance companies can use genetic information. But we do have a federal law called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act that prohibits employers and health insurers from using somebody's genetic information. What isn't covered are um, other insurance companies like life, long-term care, and disability insurers. And so what we're talking about in this piece um, is, is that gap and some recent changes um, but specifically how life insurers or disability insurers or long-term care insurers use genetic information um, to maybe charge different rates or deny somebody insurance based on that information. Right, Kaya. So that, that's, that is uh, prohibited by GINA for health insurance, but not for life insurers and long-term care. That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you state in the piece that the lack of broad genetic anti-discrimination protections may hinder scientific research. I'm not, I wasn't, whenever that I wasn't sure that was as obvious to people as the clinical implications. So can you explain a little further why that might be, why it might affect research? I can speak to that one. Um, and in fact, this is one of the things that got me interested in bioethics in the first place. So if you're partaking in genetics research, you're going to have a consent form that's stuffed under your nose. And that's going to include language that says that you are not covered for these types of insurances. And it's, not going to give you any more information than that. And some people read that and they're like, well, I'm not sure I want to partake in this research in that case, which is very reasonable of them, um, given that we give them very little, very little information about what that means. And there have been several studies that document this, that have actually gone and asked people who've chosen not to partake in research studies why they haven't, and they cite Fear of discrimination um, as one of it's one of the most cited reasons for declining to participate in genetics research. That's right, Anna. And in our own MedSeq project, which was one of the first studies to look at whole genome sequencing in healthy individuals, and in our BabySeq projects, doing the same thing for healthy newborns, both the adults that were proposed for the study and the parents of the children proposed their study, turned it down in droves. And the number one reason after logistics, a lot of them didn't want to come do the back and forth, but after logistics, the number one reason was privacy considerations and within that fear of insurance discrimination. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's hindering research, as you're saying. Yeah, that's a problem. So um, as you say, obviously, there's absolutely concern about genetic discrimination. Do you, do you have a real sense of how frequent this type of discrimination might be or any examples where there's clearly been a case to help people understand what this might look like? 
Yeah, so this is a, a really tough one to get a number on. Um, so there isn't it, two things hap are happening at once. There's not evidence of widespread discrimination in this area. So for a lot of people, they might be are okay, right? On the other hand, insurance is a black box. We don't actually know what is going into the decisions um, because that's not talked about. And so it could be happening more than we realize. So the absence of the evidence that it's widely happening doesn't necessarily mean it's not happening. We do have some specific anecdotal evidence of somebody, for example, who um, you know, has a predisposition to Huntington's disease. Um, that's the one that would be the most obvious example. Um, and they're, you know, denied insurance because of that. In other cases, it's more of mixed evidence. So for something like BRCA, with a, where there's a predisposition to breast and ovarian cancer, some insurance companies will still, some like a, a life insurance company might still insure um, a woman with that, with a positive BRCA test assuming that she's taken some of those preventive measures. Um, but that can go either way. And there's been evidence um, from some advocacy groups of people being denied and some of people um, being okay. What I think is so interesting to put together with this evidence piece and with the discussion that we were having with Anna and Robert about how it affects research is the vast, vast majority of genetic information is not that helpful to insurers. Right. The vast, vast majority of genetic information is noise to the insurance companies. And so they really only look at a handful of genetic conditions. In some modeling studies, they look at 14 genetic conditions that, that they're modeling how it might impact um, insurance. And these are ones that, you know, are, are, are the, you know, some of them are ACMG um, uh, genes, but um, if somebody's doing a study, right, I had a person reach out to me to say, I'm really nervous about getting carrier screening in pregnancy done. I'm so worried. I don't know that I'm going to do this because I'm fearful of insurance. Insurers don't, they, and carrier screening isn't going to be helpful for insurers. And so the hard thing about not having really specific evidence and insurance being a black box is that people are more worried about a broader amount of genetic information and insurers are actually using a much, much smaller piece. Now, that's not to minimize the people who have those genetic conditions that insurers are using, and then it's a really big problem for them, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm working on genetic literacy right now, so it's like you're playing my song, Anya. We need more genetic literacy. That's what everyone said. So in the piece, you talked about the new Florida law extensively. That's really the focus of the piece and how it came to be. And we all, I think, have learned a lot about how legislation is made in the last few years, <laughs> given everything that's gone on. But do you know if any geneticists were involved in actually informing the legislators here or helping shape this bill? Okay, so so let's just talk about the Florida law first. So what the Florida law did is this was a bill that was passed in in the House and Senate with bipartisan support in in Florida, um, and what it does is it prohibits life, long term care, and disability insurers all from using genetic information when underwriting. So this is a really big deal um, because when I talked about how federal law prohibits employers and health insurers, but has this gap, it means that states can fill in that gap. And some states across the country have addressed um, this a little bit. They regulate it, but, but they rarely ban it. And Florida became the first state to both ban life insurers from using this genetic information, 
but also all three of those insurances together um, from using that genetic information. Yeah, and something that's interesting is that there have been literally hundreds of attempts by state legislators to close some of these gaps in GINA uh, systematically since 2008 when GINA passed. There have been um, attempts across many, many different states. And for life insurance in particular, nothing this remotely this strong has ever passed. So this is really an exceptional piece of legislation. And uh, and it's interesting to look at what was what was different in Florida. This is Florida's fourth attempt to pass legislation like this. So they've tried again and again, and as Anya mentioned, um, with bipartisan support. But what usually happens is the life insurance lobby effectively changes the legislation, and they change it. They get it. They have managed to get it changed in many other states where they've attempted to pass similarly strong legislation to just say um, that it has to be an actuarially valid use of genetic information, which is what they do anyway. So it doesn't actually address the concern that your genetics could be used against you. And this piece of legislation had this had this big proponent, a, a representative called Sprouse. And he says that he was on the phone waiting to speak to a life insurance representative. And he saw an advert for either 23andMe or Ancestry DNA. And so, so he says his thought process went, I wonder how long it's going to be until the life insurer asked me for the results of that type of test. Um, you know, and then he was really looking into the background of it and he's like, well, we've got this big gap in our protections. And they put together a campaign to get this piece of stronger legislation. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna share for you the language that, that that campaign used. And they're using this example lady called Jane. And they say, insurance companies want to invade Jane's privacy and get a look at her genetic code. Why? The more they know about Jane, the more they can profit of her DNA, raising her rates, reducing their risk, padding their profits, and eventually pricing Jane right out of the market. Jane's own DNA has been weaponized against her by the insurance companies. This must stop. And there's a lot of other language around, um, you know, we don't want insurance just to be available to the genetic elite. We must ensure that your genetic code is not used against you. So this is the sort of rhetoric that is used by the proponents of this bill. And then the life insurance lobby respond as they, as they normally do, um, saying, you know, it's very reasonable for us to use this information. Um, you know, this is a DNA secrecy act is one of the terms used by one of the opponents. And it looks like that they, it, it at first, it looks like they're successful because they successfully get one of the committees to water down the bill to one of these bills that have been passed in many other states, which is this actuarially valid type bill. But another committee comes in and changes the bill back to the original language, and that's the form in which it's passed. So it was uh, a high drama, it sounds like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, just hearing some of that and hearing some of the rhetoric that's being used, like you said, 
I imagine that some of our members and listeners would want to get involved and, and try to kind of communicate science. So if you were talking to geneticists and, and members of ASHG who want to be involved with legislative issues like these, how do you suggest that they do that? Anybody, anybody all three of you can answer. Well, this is Robert. I think that, um, I think that, that we should be telling uh, our fellow geneticists and genetics professionals, in fact, the whole medical profession and the whole biomedical world, to get real about, um, about this issue. It doesn't occur that often. It's needlessly scaring people. Uh, so number one, I think we have to uh, make the, our communication about the existing risk proportionate. Number two, I think we should point to the Florida law and say, look, the sky didn't fall in when we actually got legal protection and we should be promoting legal protection. There's been a huge consensus in the United Kingdom that offers legal protection for, for a number of years now, and the insurance companies have managed it quite readily there. Uh, and, and number three, there's an element of this where I think we should uh, uh, stop delegitimizing the insurance companies altogether. Um, they perform a very useful function in society. And in fact, once you are their customer, their um, priorities are very much aligned with ours. Once, for example, a life insurance company has you as a customer, once they've done their underwriting, they want you to live as long as possible, right? Because that's how they make a uh, profit. And they're actually interested in providing genetic services appropriately for their members who are in their so-called book so that those members can live longer. And that very interesting opportunity to collaborate with insurance companies has kind of been lost in this vilification of insurance companies as predatory underwriters. So I do think we need to, to, to scale this to its proper pr proportions. I do think we need to protect people when they're not protected. But I also think we need to uh, figure out ways in which the insurance companies might actually become our friends in terms of uh, future alignment with keeping people living longer. And, and I'll just say um, for that, there's a couple of ways to follow what's going on in terms of the legislation um, in, in the U.S. And so um, NHGRI, the National Human Genome Research Institute, has a legislative tracker. So you can actually see statutes that have been introduced. Not They also have a uh, bills of what's already been enacted, but you can see what's been proposed. Um, and so that's one way to look at what has been proposed in your state. And I would say, if you're really interested in this, reach out to the sponsors of those bills, find the sprouls of the of your state. Um, as Anna mentioned, uh, the representative sprouls brought this in Florida. Um, and reach out to them. Even if it's a bill that was introduced in prior sessions, these are people who might want to reintroduce these bills. And some have introduced these bills many, many, many years in a row. Um, and so, um, so you can always reach out and say, are you still interested in this? And what can I do to help? Um, I've written, you know, hearing letters, you can write a letter of support. Um, and that really goes a long way um, to providing some of that genetic knowledge and, and as Robert was saying, really make the communication grounded. Um, because as far as I know, there weren't, I didn't see much evidence of geneticists being involved in the Florida debate. 
Um, there's a lot of insurers and actuaries and people on the insurance involved, and there's a lot of the public or some of the public, but, um, but we really could have a more robust discussion. Yeah, and I should also mention here that ASHG itself has the GPAC, the Government and Public uh, uh, Advocacy Committee, that you could be involved with if you're listening. And then also, since you mentioned NHGRI, my employer, I have to put a plug in, we have a public policy fellowship with ASHG, so particularly for trainees and, and early career uh, fellows who are interested in that, that's a, a great way to kind of live in that area. But I did want to, um, Robert was talking about some things that were counterintuitive, and one of the others that struck me when I was reading this was, um, you listed potential consequences of the bill, and the second one actually is kind of the opposite of what you might think, which was that one potential consequence of the Florida bill is that, quote, individuals might not be able to use beneficial genetic information to their advantage, unquote. So what would be an example of that? So an example of that is a woman with a family history of breast cancer who tests negative for BRCA. So usually an uh, a life insurer might factor in a strong family history of a particular condition and might count that against you. But if you can show, for example, that there is a BRCA variant in your family, but you don't have it, then that family history would not be factored in to your overall underwriting. Um, and there are some cases of this happening in Australia where insurers have changed the premiums they would charge on the basis of negative results in that way. Really, the BRCA example is the, is the main main one there. So we flag this as something that future legislators should consider when they're drafting their own legislation in their own states um, as potentially something to carve out um, as an allowable use of genetic information. I will say, um, so it's, it's, this is such an interesting part of the debate, right, from the policy perspective. Um, and actually, one state, Oregon, has a state statute that specifically says you cannot use genetic information to, quote unquote, induce um, insurance. And so that could maybe be read in the same way. But just plain devil's advocate, right, if we want to say insurers can't use this information, one reason why you might not want the beneficial information to be able to use is if there's enough genetic information out there, you can then create the assumption that anybody who isn't providing the beneficial information has the gene. So if we go back to the quintessential Huntington's disease context, right, where, where it's much more 50% and there's not all of the um, complexities of uh, penetrance and, and all sorts of other things, um, you could start to see the insurers creating a system where they say, well, we'll just upcharge everybody and then we can sort of lower the people who um, who have the beneficial and it ends up having the same detrimental effect. And so I do agree with Anna that we want to have legislators thinking of these issues and that it's important. But in a way, right, um, this is this is probably one of the pieces where insurers are the most frustrated where they think that the advocates want it both ways. They say, you can't use genetic information unless it's good for us. Um, and so that's a real big tension between the, the sort of how advocates in this space um, are thinking about it with a lot of complexity. But of course, genetic information, one of the things that does make it special, of course, there's a big debate about how exceptionalist we should be about genetic information. Uh, but one of the things that does mark it out, especially at least at this point in time, is people actively choose to find it out about themselves. 
Whereas most other things, there isn't such a conscious process of, do I want to know this or not? Uh, and I think it's that particular property of genetic information that we need to be thinking about when we're thinking about legislation, which is not going to put off people from learning uh, about genetic information that might help them improve their health in the future. Great. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Thank you so much for talking about it. Again, I encourage people to look the study up and contact one of the uh, places that we mentioned or one of the authors if you're interested in working on issues like this. And thank you all again for being here. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to be with you.